welcome back to the study room podcast where we bring you just one topic of revision every day and today we are going to be covering uh, the second part of paper two and namely the prime minister the cabinet and the supreme court uh yeah okay let's jump right in uh and look at the executive so what is the executive well the executive is a branch of government concerned with the formulation and implementation of policy um, and it is comprised of the Prime Minister, the Cabinet, Ministers, and Government uh, Departments. So what is the, the role of the Executive? Well, they make policy decisions. Uh, the Prime Minister and the Cabinet set political priorities and determine the com- country's overall policy direction. They also make day-to-day decisions concerning policy. And the Administrative Executive is responsible for policy implementation and oversees day-to-day administration of the state. Yes. They propose legislation, again, the executive devises and initiates legislation. Most primary legislation is proposed by the executive. They also propose a budget, Um, and yeah, the executive makes key decisions on economic policy uh, and proposes a budget. The chancellor sets out proposed levels of taxation and public spending in the budget following negotiations with the cabinet and the government departments. the executive itself has a lawmaking has lawmaking powers on secondary legislation. Uh, secondary legislation being a form of legislation which allows the provisions of an act of parliament to be brought into force or altered by ministers without requiring additional primary legislation. Uh, yeah, try to Google that and figure out what that means. Uh, okay, so what are the powers of the executive? Well, they have prerogative powers. Uh, most prerogative powers are exercised by ministers acting on behalf of the crown. Um, these include making or ratifying decisions, international diplomacy, uh, recognition and relations with other states, deployment of the armed forces overseas, prime minister's patronage powers, the ability to recommend uh, the dissolution, uh, dissolution of parliament, the organization of the civil service, and the granting of pardons. Uh, again, some prerogative powers have been clarified and limited in recent years, but it's become a constitutional convention that Parliament votes on the deployment of armed forces overseas. They also control the legislative agenda. Uh, most bills are proposed by the government, and it controls the legislative timetable. Um, and most government bills are approved by Parliament and become law. Um, yeah. The powers of secondary legislation, uh, and other powers that they have, also known as delegated legislation, it's a form of legislation which provides, uh, which allows the provisions of an act of parliament to be brought into force or amended by ministers without requiring a further act. Acts confer on ministers the power to make more detailed rules and regulations through statutory instruments. Uh, these vary from being largely technical. Uh, like stating when parts of an act come into force, to providing greater detail on broad provisions of an act. Some 350, uh, sorry, 3,500 statutory instruments are issued per year. These are scrutinized by parliamentary committees, but most are not debated, and it's usually for, uh, and it's unusual for these to be rejected. However, the House of Lords amended two regulations on tax credits in 2015. Uh, Okay, interesting stuff. Next up, let's look at the Prime Minister, uh, the main guy in this, the Gantzemacher of the uh, economic and political world. So the Prime Minister, again, head of the government, um, 
and they provide political leadership within the cabinet system and the country at large. So, Prime Minister is often referred to as primus inter pares, uh, first among equals. We're going to see how much this is actually the case uh, later on. So, what are the roles of the Prime Minister? Well, he's to lead a country in a crisis, um, meet with the royalty, he's the head of his party, he forms a cabinet, and is in, uh, in charge of foreign affairs. Um, there are different things that uh, can go into being a good Prime Minister and uh, things that make a strong leader. So you need good oratory skills to be able to quickly respond uh, and turn bad into positive. Confidence in your country and support of the party. Experience, respect from your peers and colleagues. Present yourself as selfless. Um, there's the, also the argument of principled versus pragmatic. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was very principled. Uh, Clement Attlee was very principled. David Cameron, more pragmatic. Um, they also get stuff done. Uh, that is true. There's also the um, charisma versus detail. Uh, you have very charismatic leaders sometimes versus quite detailed ones. Uh, prime ministers who have held office in the 20th, uh, 20th century, all but seven held positions um, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, members of cabinet, or Home Secretary. So as we see, um, with Rishi Sunak at the moment, uh, it's quite obvious that he wants to become Prime Minister. Yes, that is right. Uh, okay, so what is the role, again, political leadership? Uh, decides on political direction taken by the government, setting its priorities and strategy. They decide uh, or at least shape policy on high-profile issues. National leadership, uh, Prime Minister is a predominant political figure in the UK. So again, national leadership in times of a crisis, appointing the government. They determine the membership of the government by appointing and dismissing ministers. They uh, chairing the cabinet. The prime minister chairs meetings of the cabinet and sets agendas and steers its decisions. He or she creates cabinet committees and holds bilateral meetings with ministers. Uh, again, the influence of actually being a chair of a committee means that you get to sum it up at the end and kind of steer in which direction it goes. Prerogative powers. Uh, the Prime Minister exercises prerogative powers, uh, such as deploying the armed forces overseas and recommending some public appointments. Uh, managing relations with Parliament. The Prime Minister makes statements and uh, answers questions in the House of Commons. Uh, he or she also shapes the government's legislative program and representing the UK in international affairs. Uh, it's yeah in high-level international diplomacy. Um, yeah, so who becomes the Prime Minister? Well, there's, you know, it's the head of the party and the majority governments. Um, but in the case of coalition governments, um, the incumbent Prime Minister is not required to resign immediately, but is given a chance to negotiate with other parties to form a minority government or coalition government. Uh, in 2010, the electoral, uh, the election Produced a hung parliament and a conservative Lib Dem coalition government was formed. The conservatives formed a minority government after losing their parliamentary majority at the 2017 election. Yes. Uh, okay. Moving on to the prime minister's office. So again, these are the powers that, that give the uh, uh, prime minister power in sense, if that uh, sentence made any logical sense. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So this is all the staff uh, within... 10 Downing Street, 
So let's elaborate. What is uh, this thing, this prime minister's office that we're talking about? Well, the prime minister's office supports the prime minister in various ways. Uh, The private office provides administrative support. The policy unit gives the prime minister policy advice and ensures departments are working towards the prime minister's goals. The press office handles relations with the media, ensuring that the government's view of uh, that they follow the government's view of events. The political office manages links with the parliamentary and national party, keeping MPs on their side. Again, they have been criticized as the um, the press office micromanages the rest uh, of government because everything is routed uh, through that. Um, Yeah. So again, talking about his resources or her resources that the prime minister has available to them. the size of the staff for Prime Minister's office has largely increased in recent years. Uh, in 1964, the Prime Minister had 32 members of staff, whereas in 2010, David Cameron had 180 members of staff. That's a large increase, uh, if you could not tell. Uh, argued to be micromanaging the government, the most statements are routed through the Number 10's press office. Yes, we already mentioned this. Um, okay, so... Let's talk about um, the different resources that are available to the Prime Minister. Well, he has institutional resources, uh, which are the staff of civil servants, uh, sorry, the staff of civil servants, and special advisors that come with the office. Um, the earliest Prime Ministers, uh, so did they actually have considerable institutional resources, um, and how were they lost? Well. They had considerable institutional resources uh, because many of the earliest prime ministers also held the role of the First Lord of the Treasury and Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, They led and were supported by the largest department in government. Uh, Again, yeah, interesting stuff. Resources were lost in 1841 when the Prime Minister Robert Peel delegated responsibility for managing the Treasury to a separate Chancellor of the Exchequer, hoping to influence policy across the whole government instead. Prime Minister Gladstone once remarked, the PM has nothing to do, the PM has everything to do. Uh, Again, very poetic. Uh, Write that down, Mr. Walt Whitman. Uh, Okay, so uh, what are constitutive powers uh, or resources? Well, constitutive resources are the responsibility given to them by statute slash convention to make decisions and take certain actions. Uh, it's difficult to identify the PM's constitutive powers due to uncodified nature of the UK Constitution. Uh, Prime Minister Austin's royal prerogatives are an important source uh, of power because convention states that royal prerogatives today must be used on the advice of the Prime Minister of the Cabinet, meaning that the Prime Minister effectively, effectively has control on these powers. Um, there are also examples of recent legal and non-legal limits that have been imposed on royal prerogatives. Examples of legal limits of the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, which impose a statutory limit to the prerogative power to dissolve Parliament and trigger an election. This, however, again, was circumvented by uh, Theresa May, who was able to uh, use the terms of the statute to call an early election in 2017, as you might recall. Uh, Examples of non-legal limits um, uh, are the Parliamentary Approval for Military Action Convention, which means that the parliament should debate and vote uh, for the use of the armed forces. However, David Cameron uh, authorized the use of drone strikes in Syria before he informed uh, the parliament. Naughty Mr. Cameron. Uh, okay, moving right on. What is patronage? That's the power to 
to control the appointments to a range of offices. This power allows the Prime Minister to surround themselves with like-minded allies while encouraging loyalty to the front and back benches. Ministers are encouraged to be loyal to the person that appointed them. Uh, backbench MPs hoping to be promoted are also discouraged to criticize uh, the Prime Minister. Uh, the one person that can give them a promotion. Uh, yes, this is true. Powers of patronage are, however, limited by the talent pool as convention, uh, yeah, as convention of cabinet ministers must be MPs. Uh, so again, yes, they can only choose MPs to be members of the cabinet. There are pressures for the Prime Minister to appoint diverse people to reflect a population that is also a limit. Thirdly, some party figures are too senior to fire, and doing so might create rivalries, uh, so they might be al uh, above the powers of the Prime Minister uh, in that sense. Finally, uh, party factions put pressure to ensure that different uh, factions are represented in the cabinet. Um, so, how does the Prime Minister's position as head of the cabinet and their control of the cabinet system help them influence policymaking well, I'm glad you asked, because they influence policymaking as by convention, the Prime Minister calls and chairs uh, cabinet meetings along with how frequent they are and what is on the agenda. So again, they get to kind of choose uh, what is going on. As the chair, the PM decides who speaks and gets to sum up the discussion at the end and what has been decided. The final decisions become government policy. So as you can see, he does have, uh, or she does have, quite a power over government policy in that sense. It's also rare for the cabinet to vote. Uh, so the prime minister theoretically has considerable uh, discretion to, divide, uh, to decide what exactly the cabinet has approved. Uh, yeah, sneaking office of the prime minister there. Uh, by convention, the prime minister manages to uh, manages the cabinet system. They can create and abolish cabinet committees and subcommittees and decides who chairs them. This man has too much power, people. Um, okay, a sofa government is another thing that the prime minister has uh, available to them. Which, so, you know, when prime ministers prefer to make decisions in bilateral meetings with individual ministers or small groups of ministers and advisors to number 10, uh, again, this is quite controversial because it's argued uh, to be treating as cabinet as a rubber stamp. A, a good source um, to talk about this is Crossman, uh, 1963. Um, yes, where he said that the, uh, the decisions surrounding the Suez Canal crisis and the atomic bomb were made by the Prime, Prime Minister in small groups. Again, these sofa government style of policy. Under Blair, there's also the um, the kitchen cabinet was the uh, other term because he had meetings with uh, prime ministers in his kitchen. Um, famously, when Tony Blair uh, walked into his first cabinet meeting, he said, call me Tony, uh, which shows that, again, it's quite an informal uh, self-government to it, as opposed to what George Bush said when he walked into his first cabinet meeting where he said, hey, there's no cabinets in here. Uh, okay, moving on. What political resources are available to the Prime Minister? Well, political resources are the power to persuade and influence the results of popularity, seniority, and success. Yes. Uh, their authority as leader of the largest party in government, support from the cabinet, and often public uh, and often public support often gives them the power to inspire or coerce others to do what they want. Uh, so we're looking at a very kind of powerful uh, position here. Um, uh, PM's political power is 
at its strongest when large majorities are won, or their leadership election was won by a large margin, when the backbenchers are united in support for the Prime Minister's policy agenda, or when the economy is doing well and public support for the Prime Minister's performance is high. This gives the Prime Minister strong political resources. So political resources are anything that can give him an edge, uh, or her an edge, over um, influencing of uh, things. As we saw Tony Blair it was only, it took six years for him to be defeated on any bill due to the large majority that they had and the charisma and the power and the small delegation of decisions into the SOFA uh, government. They're weak, uh, so yeah, so Prime Minister can be weak when all these factors are reversed. So, what are personal resources? Well, personal resources are character traits, skills, expertise, and ways of thinking of working. Uh, sorry, ways of working <laughs> that make it easy to influence others. There's two different uh, prime ministers may have been dealt the same set of cards, but their personalities could lead them to play them in very different ways. Some prime ministers are more confident, charismatic public speakers. They may have uh, much stronger ideological visions or clearer policy aims. They can be more willing and capable of working for long and difficult hours, or they may have more experience uh, and relevant expertise. Uh, yes, this is all interesting stuff. Um, okay, I believe I'm just flipping through the textbook as quickly as possible to keep this running smoothly. Uh, that we are going to be moving on to the um, cabinet. Yes. Um, okay. Uh, let's first off just kind of sum up this whole um, Prime Minister. Uh, deal. So yes, patronage gives uh, him or her significant power because they can appoint ministers, can place allies in key roles, can dismiss ministers, can appoint outsiders to government. No, however, senior colleagues might have claims to the posts. They can be restricted by a desire for ideological balance across all parties, uh, parts of the party. Botched reshuffles can create rivals. Their choice is limited by the availability of talent. Authority in the cabinet system, prime minister Chairs and managers cabinet meetings, they stir up and sum up cabinet discussions, they create cabinet uh, committees and appoint members for them, then use bilateral meetings when ministers steer policy. No, however, um, problems can arise if a senior minister feels ignored. Senior ministers may challenge the prime minister's policy preference. The prime minister is not involved in detailed policy making in cabinet committees. Ministers can represent departmental interests seeking additional resources and influence. Party leadership, yes, the Prime Minister has authority as party leader. They have been elected by MPs and party members, Conservative and, and Labour parties. The party normally has a majority in the House of Commons. Uh, no, however, support of their party is is not unconditional. Party rules allow for leadership challenge. Backbench rebellions are often more frequent. Public standing, yes, the Prime Minister has a higher public office uh, than other ministers. There are... Uh, Communicator-in-chief for the government, they provide national leadership in times of crisis. No, however, however, unpopularity with voters can undermine their authority. They are blamed for the government's failings. They are expected to represent the public mood. Policy-making role, yes, the Prime Minister directs government policy and sets agenda, and they can direct policy in areas of their choosing. They are represented, uh, they represent the UK in international affairs. No, however, they are expected to be able uh, to articulate a vision, they lack the time and expertise to have any significant involvement in this globalization has reduced the scope for action. Prime Minister's office, yes, the office provides 
advice and support to the Prime Minister in all um, press meetings are routed through that. No, however, it has limited resources available to it. Ladies and gentlemen, I think I need a strepsil because my voice is about to go if I keep on speaking like that. Okay, uh, next up we are going to be talking about what we've kind of uh, spoken a little bit about, being uh, the cabinet. Yes, the cabinet. Um, okay, so do we have a cabinet government or is it all about the prime ministerial power? Well, good question. Uh, so let's talk about the structure of this. So you have the prime minister kind of sitting on top, and then you have the cabinet, which is 22 to 23 members, a key decision body of the UK. The prime minister sits as well as his senior ministers. These cabinet members are appointed by the prime minister, although some constraints, uh, for example, Cameron had to appoint five Lib Dems. Uh, a prime minister is also unlikely to overlook senior party members. Tony Blair appointed, uh, appointed Brown as Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, yes, so this is a model of uh, horizontal decision-making. Uh, yes, the cabinet. Cabinet committees uh, are the next thing. So there's cabinet's committees. Yes, they are things. Uh, they could take collective decisions that are uh, binding across government. Prime ministers can create, abolish, or continue cabinet committees. Uh, they can increase... Uh, or they can, I'm just trying to read my handwriting here, people, give me a break. They can increase the remit and membership. Yes, these cabinet committees create policy uh, at a smaller collective level. These meetings are minuted uh, and recorded. An example of the creation of cabinet committees uh, and, and changing of cabinet committees uh, is Theresa May did this, um, creating a new committee for Brexit. Um, and replacing the one for climate change. Uh, okay, so what are informal inner groups? Well, uh, an example is Blair's SOFA government, small groups where uh, he discussed policy. Informal means they're unminuted, they're ad hoc, and they're clique -y. Uh, So, you know, you have to be hip uh, to be in. Uh, and then again, the kitchen cabinet was when uh, Blair's close friends in his kitchen were making uh, policy decisions. I like to imagine that uh, he set his uh, meal on fire and uh, then that sparked the idea for a um, war in Iraq. Uh, okay, moving on, the cabinet. Well, uh, a lot of people have different thoughts about this. So Badgerhan's thoughts, what are his thoughts? Well, uh, he's dead, so unfortunately we cannot ask him. Um, yeah, so moving on. I'm kidding, people. We are going to cover this. Uh, he said that there's the dignified versus the efficient uh, elements of go government. The efficient being the executive, the dignified being the queen and the legislature. Uh, these are the groups that are, um, uh, I guess, yeah, less uh, of an impact on actual policy making. Richard Crossman is a key political scientist uh, that I briefly mentioned earlier. He argued that the prime minister has become so powerful post-World War II that the cabinet has become a sideshow, uh, has become part of the dignified. John McIntosh, another person talking about this, uh, he said that we do not have a system of collective government. The prime minister is the soul in decision-making, like the U.S. president. The only time policy is reversed is when backbenchers in their own party are angry. Uh, again, this brings us back 
to the question about how powerful is the Prime Minister. So, Prime Ministerial power, uh, what can the Executive actually do? Well, again, he has prerogative powers, powers exercised by ministers that do not require parliamentary approval. Most prerogative powers are exercised by ministers on behalf of the Crown, making and ratifying treaties, international diplomacy, deployment of armed forces, and can give patronage. Um, I do feel like we have gone over this um, before, so let's just mention some of the points. Yes, they, again, they control the legislative agenda. Uh, and there's also the Convention of Individual Ministerial Responsibility. Not only are ministers responsible and accountable to Parliament for their own actions, but actions of the civil service. Uh, yes, that is interesting. So let's talk a bit about the civil service, just, just kind of like uh, you know, going over it. Uh, I strongly recommend you people look at your notes uh, for the civil service in depth because as we see the civil service are um, they, they do not change with government uh, so the same group of people as different governments come in and out uh, the civil service are meant to be um, unbiased or, or aren't meant to show any political leanings uh, whatsoever and these help the um, government, uh, and these are often people who work in departments uh, such as uh, the national health care or, um, yes, other departmental groups, uh, the Office of Education, for example. Um, and these people, again, are meant to be neutral from the government, uh, just, uh, you know, going through and actually executing the policy decisions. Uh, but as we saw in Tony Blair's government, uh, the head of, I believe, uh, education or, or transport, one of the heads of the civil service was actually sitting at the table with Tony Blair when he met uh, Bill Clinton. So as we can see, they might not be uh, isolated from political, um, yeah, from, uh, from, from politics, basically. Uh, okay, that is good, that is good, people. Uh, we're just keeping this grooming, um, yeah. So let's talk a tiny bit about how has the role of the prime minister become presidential? Um, well, yeah, so you might get a source question on this. You might not. Um, so in which ways is the role presidential? Well, there's, um, yeah, so Badgerhot uh, talked about the cabinet being dignified um, as, um, yes, as Macintosh um, also stated, the press office means that all messages are routed through them. In 1964, the Prime Minister had 32 members of staff. In 2010, he had 180 members uh, under David Cameron. They chair the cabinet committees uh, and power to create or abolish them uh, and create subcommittees, decide who chairs them. Uh, again, the pace of modern politics means that their decisions actually may have to be made in small groups. Uh, again, that Crossman, uh, what he identified, uh, that the Suez and the atom bomb decisions were made by the Prime Minister in small groups. Um, there is also the slight idea of divide and rule uh, in this. If you divide these different groups, you can rule over them. Um, so chair sums up the meeting and this becomes policy. So again, the Prime Minister chairs this. So for government, kitchen cabinet uh, ad hoc undermines collective voice. Office of the Prime Minister is powerful. Unification in the civil service with a head directly responsible 
to number 10. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, I think, what I was talking about uh, earlier with uh, Bill Clinton. Pol uh, public role of the PM as face of government, large majorities give power to him or her over legislation. Uh, however, in which ways are they not presidential? Well, prime ministers can't exclude controversial items from agenda. Power of appointment is limited. Um, there is, oh, uh, my handwriting. Uh, really, cabinet is what I think it says. <laughs> Thatcher's poll tax um, lost her job as cabinet fired her, basically. So again, there is actually the role of, I think that's what I wrote, the role of cabinet, uh, or the power of cabinet. Cabinet against Blair on Iraq, and as we saw, that uh, kind of led to his downfall. Not that I am complaining. Uh, okay, so I believe... This has uh, kind of let us go over the entirety of Prime Minister and the Cabinet. Um, yes, we are going to be moving on, if you hold on to your seats, uh, onto the Supreme Court. Um, I know in the U.S. they're called the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the uh, U.S. Whereas here, I think we should introduce the name uh, SCOIC, or... <laughs> <laughs> the Supreme Court of the UK uh, doesn't sound as smooth as SCOTUS, but uh, Skoyek is a, I think, or Skoyek, or Skoyek, can be a cool name. Um, okay. Yes, let us, let us move on. People, I'm very tired, so please... Um, Bear with me as we uh, move through this. I, I, I'm betting that y you guys can skip, by the way. If you can, you know, go for it. It's 15 seconds, and like, you know, you'd have to sit here with me while I uh, fumble through my notes. Okay, Supreme Court justices and their appointment. Um, yeah, historically, Supreme Court justices were appointed appointed by the monarch on advice of the Prime Minister and the Lord Chancellor. These appointments could then be finalized through secret soundings. Uh, yeah. A very secretive process where the Lord Chancellor consulted in secret with the close associates uh, and those already on the judiciary. Secret soundings, uh, interesting word. Um, hey, it's free real estate. Okay, <laughs> they are appointed. So criticism can be made of this whole process because they're appointed by the Prime Minister Executive Branch where there's a poor separation of powers. Uh, in 2009, law lords post in the House of Lords on October 1st became the founding members of the new Supreme Court. Although they remained lords, they were now barred from sitting and voting on upper chamber uh, for as long as they remained justices and the new Supreme Court. Before this, law lords were able to vote on legislation as full members of the House of Lords, but in practice rarely did so. Nowadays, those appointed uh, to the court are not automatically awarded peerages. Um, so how does this change the optics, uh, but not an actual fact effective? Well, this is a change in optics because they moved buildings, separating powers. Their role as an appellate court did not change, however. So let's just talk about the process of how uh, the Supreme Court justices are uh, appointed today. Well, a vacancy arises, and then a five-member selection committee is convened uh, to consider possible nominees and make a selection based on merit. Uh, they, in this meeting, the President of the Supreme Court, Deputy President of the Supreme Court, one member from the Judicial Appointments Board of the UK, Scotland, and Ireland all attend. 
um, as the five members selection committee. Again, this is an independent selection committee, uh, so let's keep that in mind for the separation of powers. The commission submits a report to the Lord Chancellor identifying a nominee. This goes to the Lord's Chancellor. Um, however, this also requires a commission to reconsider its selection. Uh, if the Lord Chancellor is not that happy with it, he can reject selection, although he can only do this once, uh, and he rarely does this. Uh, accepts the selection by notifying the Prime Minister. Once notified, the Prime Minister must recommend the candidate to the Queen. Appointment confirmed once the monarch issues, uh, has issued letters patent. In what ways is this a good and fair process? Uh, these, there's an only group of five that can choose the appointment uh, appointees, so that is a weakness of this. Um, yet why is the position of the Lord Chancellor under criticism in the modern political era? The Lord Chancellor had functions in the executive. Uh, he was a member of the cabinet and the House of Lords, legislative, Speaker of the House of Lords, uh, and Judiciary uh, as the sitting law lord. So again, that was the role of the uh, Lord Chancellor before they split all these up. Let's just talk about some judicial independence here, man, because, like, you know, they are, you know, separated at the moment. Um, so what are the different uh, measures in which they may be independent? Uh, well, there's training. Uh, training and expertise senior judges means that individuals in high judicial office are adept to giving independence and take pride in its salary. Guaranteed salary is paid from a consolidated fund, always paid automatically from the fund, so politicians cannot mess with it. Uh, keeping the Supreme Court independent from outside influence. Independent appointment system. Yes, the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005 saw the creation of the Judicial Appointments Committee, increasing transparency, reducing political bias. Growing separation of powers, uh, downgrading of the Lord Chancellor's post, and the creation of uh, a separate uh, building uh, is another element or factor in that. Uh, so the Supreme Court is neutral and independent. How far do you agree? So let's just talk through this essay plan and see which points fit into what, because these are independent, uh, sorry, in, important uh, elements to talk about. So they are neutral. So in which ways are the Supreme Court neutral? Well, uh, what does neutrality mean? Acting impartially. Um, yes. So political restrictions on judges is one reason. They are not supposed to campaign on behalf of parties or pressure groups. Judges cannot stand for House of Commons elections, the 1975 House of Commons Disqualification Act. Judges are called to give evidence on par parliamentary committees, cannot comment on the merit of government policy, individual cases, serving public figures, provisions in prospective legislation. Judges cannot preside in cases uh, after they, uh, in which they have personal interests. They must declare any personal interest before the case starts. They must recuse themselves if there's any inappropriate, uh, if it's inappropriate for them to be there or hear the case. Strict code of conduct for cases that they can't uh, preside over when partner is in the court below, family member is a party member, uh, etc. A good example to use for this is the Pinochet case, where in 1998, Pinochet uh, the dictator was arrested in London. Law lords ru ruled three to two that he shouldn't be granted immunity uh, in the UK. Uh, Hoffman, one of the law lords on the case, was 
uh, both a law lord and a chairperson of Amnesty International who had brought the case to the uh, uh, to the law lords. Uh, and as a result of this, they overturned the ruling to keep up the image of uh, neutrality. Uh, there's also the Kilmer Rules, uh, or the Kilmer Convention, which states that judges shouldn't speak out uh, on uh, public television or radio about their views. Uh, however, in 2013, a judge set up a charity to promote marriage and oppose government plans for gay marriage on TV. Uh, and as a result of this, he resigned. So we can state that this possibly upheld the Kilmer Rules. Although, as we're going to look uh, in the next section, there is also judicial activism. Uh, so again, they are neutral because they must have legal justifications for their rulings based on the rule of law. Senior judges know how to view the law objectively. In what ways are they not neutral? Well, judges have recently spoken out. In 2013, Neuberger um, spoke out on planned cuts to... Um, legal aid and changes to the human rights laws. In 2015, 100 magistrates resigned in protest of an introduction of criminal courts charge for convicts. Uh, judges are no longer anonymous. The Brexit case uh, is an example of this. Uh, how Are they not neutral in terms of background and diversity? Well, there is a bias in this because five of the 11 judges went to Oxford Seven of the eleven went to Cambridge. Only one judge did not go to Oxbridge. Uh, they're pale male and one female stale. Um, and yes, the, they uh, might only have the appearance of neutrality, uh, whereas they are quite biased in a sense. In which ways are they independents? Well, there's the independent appointment system, uh, the Judicial Appointments Commission, and the Constitutional Reform Act of 2005, which brought this in. They're appointed based on merit by members of the Judicial Appointments Boards of the UK, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, and the President and Deputy President of the Supreme Court. Uh, they're guaranteed salaries that are paid from a consolidated fund. Uh, politicians can't manipulate their salaries. There is a separation of powers as law lords became the Supreme Court in 2009. Previously, no laws prevented law lords from being pol politically active, only by convention. Uh, they can only be removed by impeachment in both houses, uh, meaning that they have a security of tenure until age 75. Uh, training, as most senior judges are well trained uh, and they're all very senior and very judgy, they are adept to keeping independence because they take pride in it. Um, in which ways are they not independent? Well, the role of the Lord Chancellor beforehand uh, meant that the, there was a low level of separation of powers. And nowadays, the Lord Chancellor uh, can veto select judges for um, while you know, giving a, a reason for it. Um, yes. So, I believe, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that has covered us. For the entirety of um, paper two, there's also the section of Europe to talk about, uh, and we will cover that in a separate podcast because um, it's not going to be in these exams that I am uh, sitting tomorrow morning. So, yes, uh, thank you very much for listening. Good luck. Apologies for me being quite tired today.
and not so uh, upbeat as usual. Uh, it's just a hot summer day and I am inside uh, reading politics and I have an exam tomorrow morning. So I think that this is fairly acceptable. Uh, thank you and good luck.